Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about ADD and ADHD. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. We're going to get into a topic today that I think is going to be very helpful to a lot of people to get information about because there's been a lot of wrong information and it gets very heated because people get upset that possibly there is some type of a bias or some type of an angle somebody's got, which is true in some cases, but it's also important to make sure that whatever information that is getting out there that isn't correct, you have an opportunity to see both sides of it and to see what documented information there is. And so we're going to dive into the topic of ADD and ADHD. So let's start off with what those two abbreviations stand for? All right. ADD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder, and ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Okay. So when did those names or acronyms first come into use, and how did they come about? ADD was first named this in 1980 by the American Psychiatric Association based on their symptoms of inattention And this was officially published in their third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as DSM-3. Okay. And it was previously known as Hyperkinetic Impulse Disorder, according to the second edition of the DSM, which was published in 1968. All right. Now, in 1980, it was given two subtypes, ADD with hyperactivity and ADD without hyperactivity. Then in 1987, when the DSM-4 was released, the name was changed to Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Okay. The APA combined the three symptoms of inattentiveness, impulsivity, and hyperactivity into a single type, which no longer identified the subtypes of the disorder. All right. So everybody got lumped into one group. Right. But then in 2000, when the fourth edition of the DSM was released, the APA decided to complicate things again, creating three new subtypes of ADHD. So they are the combined type ADHD, predominantly inattentive type ADHD, and predominantly hyperactive impulsive type ADHD. Okay. So that was in 2000? Yep. All right. Now, the latest version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, came out in 2013 and kept the same name and subtypes. 
So technically, ADD doesn't really exist anymore. And so ADHD is the current designation for types of attention deficit, whether there's hyperactivity or not. All right. So with that being considered a diagnosis, which means that it's some type of a condition, what lab tests can be done to verify if somebody has ADHD? Well, I have to tell you, there are none. Aha. Uh-huh. In fact, there is no form of objective testing for ADHD. Okay, so it's just subjective? Yes. In fact, here's a direct quote from the National Institutes of Health. We do not have an independent valid test for ADHD, and there is no data to indicate that ADHD is due to a brain malfunction. Okay, that's good. So that was, again, from whom? The National Institutes of Health. Okay. So now if there aren't any lab tests, then how is it actually diagnosed? Again, it's diagnosed on a completely subjective basis through observation and opinion. And so I thought I would go through the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for ADHD, which is broken down into two categories of symptoms of inattention and symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity. All right. So it basically is somebody's observation and opinion if another person has these symptoms and that's how the diagnosis is done? Yes. Okay. So go ahead with the symptoms that are supposedly the signs or the ways of diagnosing if somebody has this. Okay. So each category has nine different ones. So the nine ones for inattention are often fails to give close attention to detail or makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. Often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or activities. Mm -hmm. Often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Mm -hmm. Often does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish schoolwork or workplace duties. Mm -hmm. Often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Okay. Often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that required sustained mental effort. All right. Often loses things necessary for tasks or activities. Mm -hmm. Is easily distracted by extraneous stimuli and is often forgetful in daily activities. All right. All of which could be on my list two or three days out of every two or three days. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Unfortunately, ADHD has been the most commonly diagnosed childhood disorder in the United States since the 1960s. And that's really dangerous because it's strictly based on observation and opinion with many of these behaviors being pretty much normal for active and energetic kids, especially young boys. Right. A 2012 survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found about 6.4 million children between the ages of 4 and 17 had been diagnosed with ADHD at some point. Mm-hmm. And that was a 53% increase over the previous decade. Wow. So I thought this would be a good time to go over my own story. Okay, go ahead. So I'm grateful that I grew up when I did and the fact that my parents and teachers were very patient with me. Mm-hmm. If it was today, I would have been the poster child for ADHD. That's for sure. And as you recall, when I was in kindergarten, I displayed every one of the symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity on a regular basis. That's right. In fact, I almost flunked kindergarten due to my behavior, not my grades, but I made it through and they warned my first grade teacher that I was a little monster to watch out for. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out I was actually well-behaved in first grade and my teacher couldn't understand why I was labeled like I was. Mm. But 
second grade hit and I turned into a little troublemaker again. Okay. This remained a mystery to me for many years why I behaved like that until I took my first nutrition class in college and realized that when I was in kindergarten, I was normally fine in the mornings, but mom and dad would have to come and get me in the afternoon because I was out of control. Mm-hmm. What I remembered is that after lunch, our teacher would often give us milk and cookies. Mm-hmm. And when you're a five-year-old and you're presented with these goodies, especially when you don't get these at home, like you know we didn't, mm-hmm. you're not going to turn these down. Right. I obviously had a sensitivity to sugar and milk when I was younger, and that explained why I would be wired shortly after consuming them. Mm-hmm. In first grade, my teacher never gave us any sweets. Oh, that's interesting. So that was the big change. Mm-hmm. However, in second grade, our desks had little wicker baskets filled with hard candies every day, and mine was usually empty by the end of the day, and I was climbing the walls like a crazy person. Right. That is, like you said, it's fortunate that you grew up when you did, because if you'd grown up now, it would have been a problem. Yeah, so that's kind of a a way of diagnosing that. It gives people the idea that the way it's diagnosed is you have a list of symptoms, and if somebody has X number out of this X number for this amount of time, that means they have this condition, which is all subjective. There's nothing objective about it. So when somebody is diagnosed with ADHD, what's the accepted medical treatment for it? Well, the medical treatment plans for ADHD may include special education programs, psychological intervention, and drug treatment, with drug treatment being the predominant approach today. Right. And there are two classes of drugs now used for ADHD, and they are psychostimulants, or sometimes called stimulants, Mm -hmm. which include Ritalin, Adderall, Dexedrine, Concerta, and Focalin. And there's also non-stimulants, which include Intuniv, Capvay, and Stratera. Okay, so those are some of the ones that we've heard about, especially Ritalin. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that kids are being prescribed, yeah. that are being prescribed for children that are diagnosed with ADHD and for adults. That's true. You know, in the 1970s, 150,000 American children were taking stimulants for ADHD. But by 2014, this number skyrocketed to 4.3 million. Wow. That's a 2,766% increase. Uh Unreal. Yes, it is unreal. And the interesting thing about it, which we'll get into in probably a few minutes, is you're talking about them being stimulants. So they are similar to things like cocaine. They have the same type of classification, but in children, they have kind of a reverse reaction to that. What happens, isn't it? Yeah, it's because of dosage. Any drug, if you give it in a smaller dosage, can have an opposite effect. If you give it in a larger dosage, it can have, especially stimulants, they become more of an active type of thing instead of uh, suppressing their activity. Okay. Now, what are the potential side effects that exist for these kind of drugs? I thought I would go over the two ADHD medications that have been around the longest and account for approximately two-thirds of medications still currently prescribed for ADHD. Okay. And they are Ritalin and Adderall. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with Adderall just because I have so much to cover on Ritalin. In fact, we can easily do an entire podcast on Ritalin alone, as you know. Now, Adderall came out in 1960 and is today the most commonly prescribed amphetamine with effects similar to cocaine. Right. 
So amphetamines are potent central nervous system stimulants, which means they speed up the messages traveling between the brain and the body. Right. And Adderall works by increasing dopamine levels in the brain. Now, dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which is a brain chemical, and it, it is specifically is the body's feel-good chemical since it creates a rewarding effect. Mm -hmm. It can also help increase your ability to pay attention, stay focused on an activity, and control behavior problems. And it may also help you organize your tasks and improve listening skills. All right. So from that, it sounds like Adderall is increasing a chemical the body normally produces, which is a good thing. So it sounds like, you know, from that, that it would all be good. That's true. And it's also commonly requested as a prescription to help increase productivity for stressful work conditions or to help students with studying for tests. Mm -hmm. And some people even fake the symptoms of ADHD to get their own prescription for the drug, while others get it so that they can increase their energy and alertness so they can go clubbing to the wee hours of the morning. Okay. It's, a, it's an illegal substance uh, in professional sports, including the NFL, and there have been players that have been suspended for a number of games because they were found to have used this. Okay. Um, Sounds like that drug in the Bradley Cooper movie. Remember that one where he mm -hmm. took that pill and then he was like incredibly brilliant and fast at things for days. So yeah. it's like almost. Kind of. Well, unfortunately, Adderall has some nasty side effects, which start with its extremely high addiction potential. Okay. In fact, it's so addictive that it's classified as a Schedule II controlled substance along with Ritalin, mm -hmm. as well as cocaine, crystal meth, and the opiate pain medications, morphine, Demerol, oxycodone, and hydrocodone. Yeah. Not a, not a category you'd really want to have something in. Yeah, and by the way, the only drugs with a higher abuse potential, according to the Controlled Substances Act put out by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, are the class one drugs, which are heroin, hallucinogens like LSD, mushrooms, and PCP, marijuana, and ecstasy. Wow. Okay. So now getting back to Adderall, the brain of someone addicted to it is dependent on it to stimulate alertness and productivity. All right. So there's the double edge of the sword is that it increases alertness and productivity. But then what happens is that when it isn't in there, it drops down and it requires more of the drug to be aware and alert and productive. That's right. You know, when people aren't on it, they feel tired and mentally foggy. And then there's common signs of an Adderall addiction. They include needing larger doses to feel the drug's effects because you develop a tolerance to it. Mm-hmm. Taking the drug despite knowing of the harm it's causing, mm -hmm. not being able to finish work without using it, mm. and spending a lot of money getting the drug. Okay. All right. Well, let's cover Ritalin now. Mm -hmm. uh, this is right up there with my least favorite prescribed drugs of all time. In fact, it might just be my number one. Okay. If I was a little younger and had different parents, again, I very well may have been put on this drug. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where to start? Ritalin is another class two central nervous system stimulant, and it works by altering the brain's levels of dopamine and norepinephrine, which are both neurotransmitters that allow signals to move from one nerve cell to another. Okay. The FDA approved Ritalin in 1955, and it became more popular as the ADHD diagnosis increased, especially in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. An extended release form of Ritalin called Concerta was approved by the FDA in 2000. Oh. 
And in addition to the fact that Ritalin is a class two drug that can be highly addictive, it has quite a list of side effects affecting many areas of the body. Okay. So I thought I'd go through these. Go ahead. So it's been reported to affect the cardiovascular system by causing sudden death in those who have heart defects or heart problems. Okay. Stroke and heart attacks in adults that take it. Mm-hmm. And increased blood pressure and heart rate. Hmm. It's also been associated with mental issues, including unusual behavior and thoughts, aggressive behavior, psychotic symptoms, and anxiety. Yeah, that's not good. Right. There's also circulation issues associated with it, including numbness, pain, skin color change, and sensitivity to temperature in the fingers or toes. Okay. And other miscellaneous common side effects include headaches, stomach aches, trouble sleeping, nausea, decreased appetite, and nervousness. Mm-hmm. And more serious but less common side effects include seizures, which mostly occur in patients with a history of seizures or mm-hmm. epilepsy. Slower growth in children, and get this, uh, painful or prolonged erections. Hmm. So men who develop this problem should seek medical help right away because of the potential for permanent damage. Wow. Yeah. So there was a report in, in the 1995 archives of general psychiatry that concluded that cocaine is one of the most reinforcing and addicting of the abused drugs and has pharmacological actions that are very similar to those of Ritalin. Mm-hmm. So you pointed that out earlier. Right. And Ritalin is structurally similar to amphetamines or speed. And according to Goodman and Gilman's pharmacological basis of therapeutics, its pharmacological properties are essentially the same as those of amphetamines. Mm -hmm. Uh, This fact, along with its easy access, particularly by older family members of children that are prescribed it, has resulted in Ritalin becoming our nation's biggest street drugs problems for many years. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Ritalin, along with other psychotropic drugs, especially a group of antidepressants called SSRIs, which include Prozac, Paxil, Lovix, and Zoloft, have been linked to many of our nation's school shootings over the past 20 years. Right. And in just one year's time, between May of 1998 and May of 1999, there were three school shootings by teenagers who were on Ritalin at the time. Mm-hmm. In May of 1998, 15-year-old Kip Kinkle of Springfield, Oregon, who was on Ritalin and Prozac, murdered his parents, and then went to school and opened fire in a cafeteria, killing two and wounding 22. Mm -hmm. In May of 1999, 15-year-old T.J. Solomon of Conyers, Georgia, who was taking Ritalin at the time, opened fire at his school and wounded six classmates. Mm -hmm. And also in May of 1999, 15-year-old Sean Cooper of Notice, Idaho, fired two shotgun rounds at his school, narrowly missing students and staff. Right. I'd also like to add that one of the great musical geniuses of our time, Kurt Cobain of the group Nirvana, was adversely affected by Ritalin for many years, and he took his life while he was on heroin. Wasn't Michael Hutchins or Hutchinson from NXS also on psychiatric drugs when he committed suicide? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So Cobain started out as a Ritalin kid. And medical studies show that Ritalin can predispose a child to later harder drug use, including cocaine. Mm -hmm. And in his case, Ritalin kept him awake and he was prescribed sedatives to counter these side effects. Uh. And despite claims that these would help him study, he remained a poor student and dropped out of high school. Mm. And after years of taking addictive prescription drugs, Cobain turned to street drugs, including heroin, which he unsuccessfully tried many times to quit. Right. 
In addition to this, he had some untreated medical conditions, including, of all things, spinal curvature that was aggravated by the weight of his guitar around his neck, hmm. along with a burning, nauseous stomach that was so awful that it led him to feelings of suicide. Hmm. Uh, stomach ache, as we learned earlier, is a common side effect of Ritalin, and Cobain used heroin because it actually relieved the burning in his gut. When his drug problem became critical, his wife and friends enrolled him in a psychiatric drug recovery center. But after just 36 hours there, he fled the center and took his life by shooting himself in the head at his home. Wow. And his autopsy found heroin and Valium in his bloodstream. Hmm. So he left a suicide note, which hinted at two things that led to his tragic decision. The stomach pain that he suffered with for years and the fact that he lost his passion for music, likely due to the fact that he was chemically handicapped. Right. Just, just unbelievable. That's correct. Now, isn't there also evidence showing that, and I can't remember whether it was Ritalin or other psychiatric drugs, especially with children and teenagers, that they're, and it might even be marijuana, that their brains actually will shrink when they've used it for longish periods of time? Yeah, there is brain atrophy, and it's been found in quite a few studies. Okay. All right. So that goes over what some of the side effects are for the drug. So is now, is there any information that indicates these conditions might be due to some other physical condition, like allergies or toxicity? Oh, yes. So I'd like to list out all the legitimate potential causes of ADHD behavior, most of which I have observed in myself, as well as my patients. Okay. So these include allergies and or sensitivities to foods mm -hmm. like milk, wheat, corn, soy, eggs, chocolate, citrus, and peanuts. Okay. And then there's environmental sources like mold, pollen, grass, dust, solvents, mm -hmm. perfumes, formaldehyde, pesticides, and herbicides. Okay. And other miscellaneous dietary sources include artificial colorings and flavorings, additives, refined sugar, refined white flour, and sugar substitutes like aspartame or NutraSweet. Yes, that's not a big surprise. Mm -hmm. Other potential health-related causes which I've seen include parasites, yeast infections, also known as candidiasis, heavy metal toxicity, low blood sugar, adrenal gland imbalances, and specific nutrient imbalances and deficiencies, including vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, hormones, and probiotics. Okay. Now, other miscellaneous environmental causes include boredom, watching too much TV, a poor living environment, poor teaching, and study difficulties. Okay. You know, our nation's high illiteracy rate stems directly from the fact that most of us are never actually taught how to study correctly, and which sets up many of us with learning difficulties. Correct. And a simple thing such as reading over a word which you don't completely understand or use in the wrong context can actually result in many of the symptoms associated with ADHD. That's a good point. Yeah. I just want to say that instead of taking the time to find the underlying cause or causes of children behaving badly, being inattentive or being hyperactive or impulsive, but rather taking the lazy route and drugging kids with Ritalin and similar drugs... You know, I just don't see any difference between that and shooting up wild zoo animals with tranquilizers. Right. To me, it's the same thing. Yeah. Well, in a lot of cases for parents, it's they don't have the time. They don't want to be bothered. And this is the easy way to go. I know. And that is what drug pushers, whether they be pharmaceutical companies or street drug hustlers, 
go after, which is that people are looking for an easy solution to some problem or pain. Anyway, are there any case studies that you know of where ADD or ADHD sufferers were treated successfully without the use of drugs? Yes. Okay. So there are repeated studies, including one from The Lancet in 2011, that have shown that a significant percentage of children with ADHD respond positively to following an elimination diet. So if you remember in our allergies podcast, number 39, I went into detail on elimination and rotation diets, which are especially effective for people with food allergies and sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And in summary, what you do is you eliminate the most common allergic foods, and then you reintroduce them one by one paying close attention to which ones produce symptoms. And in this case, the symptoms of ADHD, which we went over earlier. Right. And then you eliminate the ones that are troublesome. And if they're true allergies, then you eliminate them permanently. But if they're just sensitivities, you can try to reintroduce them back again in about three to six months, one by one, and notice if they're still causing behavior issues. If you recall, there's blood tests that can tell whether you have a true allergy or a sensitivity to a food, if you want mm -hmm. to find out that way. That's right. Now, there are clinics throughout the U.S. called the AMEN clinics mm -hmm. that use drug-free alternative medicine approaches to ADHD using the French model of care, which looks more at social and situational causes as opposed to the simplistic American biological cause of so-called chemical imbalances. Mm -hmm. The French always look at people as whole beings and never just as their symptoms, so their approach takes into account a person's biological, psychological, social, and spiritual health. And the AMEN Clinic's non-drug holistic approach boasts treatment outcomes of 75% of their patients experiencing significant improvement after six months and 85% experiencing better quality of life after six months. Great. Yeah. Then there's Doris Rapp, who I know you're familiar with. Yeah, I was going to make sure that that came up if you didn't bring it up because I mm -hmm. actually saw her when I she came to Minneapolis in like 1988. Mm-hmm. You know, she's now, I believe, 90 years old and is still in practice as a medical doctor. That's amazing. I know. She's written quite a few books, including the New York Times bestseller, Is This Your Child? And has produced a bunch of videos and DVDs showing numerous case studies of children acting completely bizarre when exposed to certain foods. And then they were completely fine after the foods were out of their systems. Yeah, I'll never forget one of the ones that she showed in that auditorium was this young girl who would go completely wild. And they found out what it was, was grapes. She had a sensitivity or an allergy to grapes. And they would give her some grapes, and then she would start just all of the typical symptoms of quote-unquote ADHD. And then they had a way of treating it so that it wouldn't get out of control, so that they were able to give her grapes and she didn't have that reaction. But they actually showed the reaction specifically just from giving her some grapes, which was what caused that to kick in in her case. Exactly. Yeah, she's appeared on Oprah, Larry King, and she was recently interviewed by Dr. Joseph Mercola on his website. Mm. And, you know, her books and videos are highly recommended for enlightening people about the connections between food allergies and sensitivities, along with environmental allergens and toxins that can absolutely cause ADHD symptoms, as well as things that you can do to overcome them. Yeah, and it's very important information for people to understand that these things can cause those problems so that they realize that this whole thing about, well, you have this condition, your child has this condition, so they have to take this drug. 
that's a diagnosis that's being done by school administrators or teachers or people who don't ever look at these conditions as being something possibly caused by a physical situation like an allergy. And so it's actually, in my opinion, criminal that they're able to do that and put children on drugs that have such severe side effects and potentially devastating problems that are caused by them when it doesn't need to happen. Right. I can't argue with that. Another great trailblazer in in successfully helping children diagnosed with ADHD through non-drug approaches is Dr. Marianne Block of the Block Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, yeah. I remember that. So, yeah, she authored the best-selling books, No More ADHD and No More Ritalin. Mm -hmm. And her clinic offers a two-day and five-day non-drug ADHD program, which includes a wide spectrum of really cool lab tests, along with two hours of consulting with Dr. Block herself. Right. And she also has tons of case studies which validate her innovative approach. Good. Now, I thought I'd share one of many examples that I've been fortunate enough to take part in, and that is I had a young girl that I treated who was diagnosed with ADHD. This was many years ago when I was in practice in Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ADHD is much more prevalent in young boys, but she definitely fit the criteria since her mother got notes from her teacher on a regular basis that she was inattentive, hyperactive, and disruptive basically every day. Mm -hmm. So I tested her and I found that she had a hidden intestinal parasite infection, which made her hyper and fidgety. Mm-hmm. I mean, hello, if you were a little kid and had worms, you would be that way too. You know? mm-hmm. So within a couple of days after starting her anti-parasite remedies, her behavior completely changed and her mother started getting positive notes back from her teacher, commending her excellent behavior. And she was totally fine after that. That's great. Yeah. All right. There was one thing you mentioned along the way I wanted to check on when you talked about chemical imbalances. If I remember correctly, that is the line that's used often when referring to ADHD is that there's a chemical imbalance. Is there any test or any evidence anywhere ever that's shown that there is some chemical imbalance that is behind this or that is fixed by taking these drugs? I haven't seen it. I mean, there are definitely chemical imbalances in the body for various conditions, but there is no test for this type of behavior that has to do with a chemical imbalance in the body. It's it's a uh, theory. It's complete theory. Yeah. Well, that's theories are very nice, but you want to back them up with some type of evidence, something scientific, something objective that can be tested. All right. Now, is there anything else you'd like to say before we end? Oh, yeah. I'd like to share some information, including quotes from some reputable mental health professionals regarding their professional opinions on ADHD and Ritalin. Okay. Let's start with Dr. Peter Bregan. Dr. Bregan is a psychiatrist and has written many excellent books, including Toxic Psychiatry, Talking Back to Prozac, and The War Against Children. Mm -hmm. His insight regarding ADHD is absolutely brilliant, and I thought I would share some quotes from him. Okay. So he says, the problem is almost always rooted in parents and teachers who feel overburdened, unable to reach out, or frustrated trying to impose discipline. He also says that the symptoms or manifestations of ADHD often disappear when the children have something interesting to do or when they are given a minimal amount of adult attention. Uh Now, I can attest to this. Uh, When I took British literature and was made to read Beowulf and the Canterbury Tales, 
I would have rather walked on ground glass or had a root canal. I just did not want to be there. So I didn't pay attention. And I was the class clown cracking jokes and making noises. So thank goodness for cliff notes. Uh -uh. <laughs> yep. Bregan also suggests that children should never be given the idea that they are diseased or defective or are the primary cause of their conflicts with their school and families. Children can benefit from guidance and learning to be responsible for their own conduct, and they need empowerment, not humiliating diagnoses and mind-disabling drugs. Very good. Yeah, very well put. Now there's Thomas Armstrong, PhD, who's written about 15 books on classroom learning, including The Myth of the ADHD Child and ADD, ADHD Alternatives in the Classroom. Okay. You know, he also wrote an insightful article entitled, Why I Believe That Attention Deficit Disorder is a Myth. Hmm. So we should definitely leave a link for this one. Okay. And in it, he says, when parents hear me say that attention deficit disorder is a myth, they sometimes become very upset. They think I'm saying that their kids aren't jumpy, distractible, forgetful, impulsive, or disorganized. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's quite obvious to me that our nation's children have probably never been so hyperactive. The question is, what accounts for this? Is it a medical disorder called ADHD? I think not. I think instead that what we've learned to call ADD is instead a number of things all jumbled up together under this simplistic label. Kids can be hyperactive for any number of reasons, because they're anxious or depressed, because they're allergic to milk, because they're bored with school, because they have a different kind of mind and aren't being challenged, because they're overstimulated from television and video games. I could go on. The point is that the ADHD label makes it too easy to ignore what might be going on beneath the surface of things. Oh, he has ADHD. Whew. Glad we know what the problem is now. But perhaps we don't really know it all. He goes on to say, I've seen studies showing that the symptoms of ADHD disappear or lessen under several real-life situations. When the child is doing things that interest him, when he's engaged in one-to-one -one interaction with someone he trusts, when he's being paid to do something, and when he can control the outcomes of his activities. If ADHD can disappear under these conditions, then how can ADHD really exist as a medical disorder? Exactly. Yeah. And finally, he says, I'm very concerned that the literature on ADHD has so much to say about what these kids can't do and virtually nothing about what they can do. In my own informal research, I've seen countless examples of kids labeled ADHD who are musicians, dancers, athletes, leaders, and creative in many ways. Why don't we see these kids as basically healthy and creative individuals who may not function as well in certain kinds of environments? For example, the worksheet wasteland of many classrooms, but do great when given a chance to learn in their own way. Why don't we start using models of growth to describe our highly energetic kids and throw this ADHD disease label in the trash basket where it belongs? Excellent. I agree completely. Yep. And then I want to end with what's called the Results Project. Mm -hmm. And that is an organization that, that actually no longer exists, but their founder had some outstanding and humorous articles regarding HDHD since he was diagnosed with it as an adult and vehemently disagreed with it. Their founder called his disorder a huge asset as opposed to a handicap and that a deficit is something that the government has, not people. <laughs> That's great. 
And what I found very interesting is, is that he found that children and people with ADHD are what he called fast thinkers. And that being in a classroom situation where everyone is expected to learn at the same rate can be very boring and unchallenging to this group because it's too slow for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I recall in school, I had teachers that talked ridiculously slow like this. And that basically put me to sleep. And I, I remember I would tap my feet rapidly to keep myself alert and interested. Mm. Remember, that's one of the symptoms of ADHD, tapping your feet. Right. So that was kind of like my way of drinking coffee when I was a kid. Mm. Keep me awake, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, he also emphasized that some of the most intelligent and successful people throughout history appeared to have ADHD behaviors, including Albert Einstein, Walt Disney, Thomas Edison, Benjamin Franklin, Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan, and Steven Spielberg. Wow. So fortunately, these great men were able to excel by harnessing their creative energies instead of being subdued with dangerous drugs like Ritalin so that they would behave and focus better in boring and unchallenging classroom situations. You know? Exactly. And good thing, the all-time Olymp Olympic gold medal champion Michael Phelps decided to quit taking Ritalin for ADHD at an early age, and he put his abundant energy drive to good use, too. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, and finally, the organization that has been at the forefront for helping people protect their children from being misdiagnosed with ADHD or forcibly told that they have to take potentially harmful med medications for it is the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. We can also leave a link to their website in the podcast notes too. Yeah, and that's important because in certain states, I'm not going to mention mine, but in certain states, if parents do not agree with their child being diagnosed with ADHD and do not agree to have them put on class two drugs, which are very addictive and can cause things like suicidal thoughts and aggressive violent behavior, that a child protective services can come in and take them away, take the children away because they're saying that it's child abuse, not forcing your children to take these drugs. So if anybody ever finds themselves in that type of a situation, they should contact CCHR because you do have rights. This is America, and nobody should be being forced to have their children take drugs that could cause horrible problems. It may be something that's easily treated otherwise. So yes, we'll definitely have a link to CCHR in the podcast notes. That's great information, and hopefully a lot of people will get to listen to this and understand the topic a lot better because it's very important, not only for them, but for their children or children's children. So make sure that everybody you know gets to listen to this. If you're listening to it, share it with other people. Next week, we're going to talk about another topic that affects children. It's something that's an actual condition that's increasing dramatically. And we're going to kind of dive into it and look at what might be causing it, what things might be able to be done to help with it. And that has to do with autism, which is a very difficult situation for any parent that has an autistic child. So that's going to be next week's topic. So thanks for all your research and all the information again, Steve. You're very welcome. And we'll talk next week. All righty. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. 
To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.